there's no such thing as climate change. This week, amid several events of recent transit violence, the discussion around turnstiles is being recycled. Plus, the Valley Line doubles its frequency. At least, sometimes. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 245. Mac, I did get some feedback on our last episode. Two pieces. First is that I don't think everyone listens to every episode of Speaking Municipally because I got a couple questions of who's Stephanie? <laughs> and I, okay. I suppose we indeed didn't introduce her because she's already in the canonical Speaking Municipally universe. But Stephanie Swensrud is, of course, Taproot Edmonton's newest a reporter. Yeah, she joined Taproot in October. Uh, we wrote a little blog post welcoming her. You can learn a little bit more about her there. And I suppose I should have just put those links in the show notes. That would have been helpful. I can do that. Indeed, the Taproot family is growing. And so, too, does Speaking Municipally's cast of characters sometimes grow. You're not faulted for not listening to every episode, but really... Just listen to every episode. Then you could avoid this entire problem. And the second piece of feedback? It was noticeable that you and her were off on the speaking municipally, saying it together, which is funniest to me because you and she were in a physical room (laughs) together. Uh, Through the magic of editing, I've been making us sound identically perfect because I can move our tracks in post together. Yeah. But when you're actually trying to say it in person with another human... Turns out it's a little bit harder than doing it digitally. I guess you can go back and listen to our very early episodes when we recorded in your office, home office, and probably not as aligned as we are today. Yeah, you know, there's there's some rough parts in those early episodes. So too are there rough patches of grass all over the city because they're, well, maybe today specifically there's a blanket of snow. We got a good dump last night, but we had no snow November that just rolled through the uh, province of Alberta. This was the first time in a hundred years or more that Edmonton Airport hasn't seen any snow in November. It's a winter drought, but it's not just the climate impacts of snow. Uh, There's also some budget impacts of having a no snow November. The warmest and driest November on record, apparently. And so normally we'd have a whole bunch of crews out cleaning the snow, moving the snow, piling the snow, doing all of that work that we talk about every Feels like every few months, really, Troy, on this podcast. And instead, they're doing other things, which is good, like filling potholes and cleaning up litter and removing waste and all the rest of it. In any case, the other things they're doing cost potentially quite a bit less than snow removal. And so we don't know what the final figures will look like, but the city is estimating that possibly about $5 million will have been saved due to the lack of snow. That's about $4 million on contracted snow plows. By the way, the city has recently launched with that dump of snow today a a, a real-time snowplow map. So you can go see uh, Amarjeet Slohi and all... Amersleet Snowhi. Amersleet Sohi and all the rest of them on the map, which is pretty cool. And then a million dollars from fuel maintenance and and overtime and things like that. So not insignificant, although, as I said, final numbers still to come. If we have a February with unseasonably high snowfall that, you know, has three or four more snowfall events... That's the entire budget is burned up basically in that the snow clearing budget is at best a guess. We usually come into the spring operating budget adjustment saying here's how we were wrong this year. Sorry, guys. It's not just the city budget, though. I saw some reporting this week that the Edmonton Ski Club is, you know, having some difficulty opening due to the unseasonably warm weather and lack of snow. And my initial response to that was, well, duh, you're a ski hill in the middle of a city that has no snow in it. How are you even open? But it turns out they are firing their snow gun and they do have 
one of their lifts open. Yeah, apparently it needs to be colder than minus four in order for them to make snow. The ideal temperature is even below that, obviously, minus 10 to minus 12. Then they have they have four snow guns and they can run them all at that temperature. I did go by on the weekend and uh, drove by on Connors Road, and it looks like they are producing snow. So there is some snow getting generated, but I can imagine it's been pretty challenging with the temperature. And I s- assume they don't have the same kind of budget as the FIS Snowboard Big Air World Cup event, which is happening this coming weekend in Edmonton. Uh, according to the city of Edmonton for that event, 116 truckloads of snow have been brought in specifically to make those big ramps and things like that. From where, I wonder, are these snow loads being trucked? Yes, this is a good question. Probably pretty far away, unless there's some snow-making machine that doesn't need cold temperatures nearby, but I can't imagine that's the case. Because, of course, you know, if you truck it down from Alaska, it'll melt on the way. Indeed. I did see a Facebook ad for this event, and they are actually advertising we have snow, even though you don't. That was the gist <laughs> of the ad. It's don't worry about the no snow in Edmonton. We'll have snow at the event. As the winter starts to ramp up and temperature starts to drop, though, not substantially at this point, but they are dropping. Uh, we see the typical uh, result of lowering temperatures, which is our uh, transit stations and our LRT tunnels and the underground pedways tend to be full of people who have nowhere else to go. Uh, This is a common refrain that happens every time about this time of year. And every year, we're going to do something about it. And every year, we don't quite seem to have done something about it. But there was a slew of reported cases of transit violence uh, this week, some pretty serious events. And this has spurned Councillor Tim Cartmel to uh, present a motion, this is going to be upcoming on December 12th, for a pilot to bring back test barriers or turnstiles in a couple of transit stations. Yeah, so this this follows uh, a couple of pretty high-profile things in the last couple of weeks, separate attacks at LRT stations. 55-year-old woman and 58-year-old man were injured in, in attacks. The police are saying there's been more than 500 reported cases of violence at transit centers and LRT stations so far in Edmonton this year. So they're making the case that there's quite a bit of safety issues around transit stations and that we need to do something about it. Councillor Cartmel is sort of piggybacking on that to talk about turnstiles. And I want to talk about turnstiles, but first, I think it's important to just put this information into a little bit of context. So the reporting this week, more than 500 violent crimes reported inside transit centers this year. A little over a month ago, October 25th, report went to city council talking about the improved safety of transit and how many fewer instances of violent crime there have been on transit. 36% decrease from August to September. Uh, Violent incidents reported fell 47%. Number of incidents fell quite significantly, even though throughout that same time period, the number of riders increased. So just a month later, and now we're hearing about how unsafe everything is again, even though at the end of October, we heard things were improving. That's one bit of context. The other is what, 200,000 to 300,000 people ride ETS every single day. According to the information we got during the budget, bus ridership is back to pre above pre-pandemic levels. LRT and paratransit, DATS and other things are not quite yet at pre-pandemic levels, but they're also still very much in recovery mode. My point being, there's a lot of people that take transit every single day without any issue. 
it's much more dangerous to get into your car every day than it is to take transit. So just a little bit of context around this doom and gloom from the police. It is tragic when we hear about an LRT platform where an individual could be put into a coma by 12-year-old girls, as some of the reporting that we heard this week. That's, of course, a very tragic event. But people die every day on our road. Like, that lady, thankfully, is not dead. She's in critical condition in the hospitals, and I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But our transportation system in Edmonton is dangerous. Um, this is something that Vision Zero has sought to remedy. That context that you mentioned, 200 to 300,000 rides on ETS at 500 violent incidences in uh, transit stations in a year. That means, you know, it's at most a couple a day. So two instances in 300,000 rides, that's a very small incidence of violence. Is this actually less safe than other commuting options? No, probably not. It's probably more safe. But it can't be undersold. I mean, you live downtown. You've gone through the pedways. You know that it is different than it was before. The feel of our transit centers and our pedway system in the opioid crisis, in our houselessness crisis, it has gotten to a place where maybe unsafe is not the right word to use, but it doesn't feel designed for the optimal transit experience. It is serving a much more social role. I think this is a good distinction too. So with this context, we're trying to say that transit is a relatively safe option. The facts support that it's a relatively safe way to get around the city. The perception of safety is a very different thing. And I think that's where Tim Cartmel is coming from in his blog post that he wrote about this forthcoming motion on turnstiles and some of the things he's asking about. So I read his blog post and it's as you would expect from Tim Cartmel, kind of calling a whole bunch of people out and making some statements and everything. But I found myself actually trying nodding along through a bunch of his blog posts. He talks about more funding for police officers, more funding for transit police officers, caught teams, help teams, the Healthy Streets Operations Center, the list goes on, he says. We have so many programs and teams and things we've spent money on, it's hard to keep them straight. And yet, people don't feel safe. And I think that's a really reasonable question to ask. Why don't people feel safer if we've invested all of this time and energy and, and resources into trying to address this problem? I think these are questions that lots of people have. And I think Tim Carmel is reflecting what he's hearing from other people. And I'm sure what lots of other counselors are hearing as well. You say you're doing all this stuff about safety. Why doesn't it seem any safer? Now, to jump from that to turnstiles as a solution, is a bit of a stretch in my mind. I'm actually not opposed to turnstiles. I think that would be fine to install. I think people are sometimes confused when they get to Edmonton and don't find a turnstile like you would find in most other transit systems. If it helps with fare evasion or even just knowing where to go to pay, which can sometimes counterintuitively be confusing in our LRT stations because you can just walk in. It's like, I didn't realize where, to, where am I supposed to pay? Like turnstiles could be a good thing. But in terms of actual safety, I haven't seen a ton of evidence to support that they would improve that. And in terms of perception of safety, I'm almost 100% sure they will do nothing to improve that because the turnstiles will not be installed at street level, which means you're still walking into the LRT station, past people doing drugs, past urine, past all the different things that we experience on the way into the LRT station. 
that's not going to make you any feel any safer when you get down to the almost to the platform and then have to go through the turnstile. I too, like you, don't really mind turnstiles. In fact, uh, I was recently on a trip to uh, Vancouver and Seattle over the summer, and both of those do have you know turnstiles on their system, and it actually feels kind of fun. You know, as a commuter to, you know, walk up, tap your card, get the green thumbs up sign and go through the arrow. Yeah, it can be if you're designing this space for transit use, it can feel like, you know, you've got a start and an end to your transit journey. It can feel kind of rewarding as a commuter. But I think turnstiles actually make the perception of safety worse on our Edmonton transit system. The person that's using drugs, that's peeing on the floor or doing whatever is going to be now in a more concentrated space. And if we're going to be clearing these people out of that concentrated space, now suddenly you have this choke point to get into the uh, LRT platform and there's police action happening directly in front of that. It creates sort of like a conflict zone in one specific choke point on the platform, which I think makes the whole thing feel less safe because you're constantly seeing the result of this term style conflict. Couple that with... We're not talking about turnstiles on every platform in the city of Edmonton. Councillor Tim Cartsmell's motion is going to be a pilot project, the Edmonton way, for turnstiles on exactly two. Two stations in the city of Edmonton um, with an intensely permeable LRT network um, and a new Valley Line LRT that's designed to be, you know, street-level permeability. If you can get around a turnstile by getting on the train and just getting off the train past the turnstile another stop i can't imagine what this would hope to accomplish turnstiles as a sort of like perception of safety metric is sort of an all or nothing thing you need them everywhere to reap the benefits of them at all if there's going to be any and as we've seen from the study in calgary that they did there are unlikely to actually be any benefits for an incredibly substantial cost the cost to put turnstiles on our entire system could literally pay for a uniformed officer to be at every transit station 24-7 for quite a significant period of time before it would ever flip over on the cost benefit. I think what you've highlighted is that I'm not convinced that Councillor Carmel is actually interested in improving the security with this motion. It feels very much, for the reasons you've outlined, it's more along the lines of, I wanted to be able to say I tried. Mm. I tried to make this motion to get turnstiles installed, but it didn't happen or it didn't work or or whatever the situation is. I, too, question whether or not this would actually provide us with much data that would help us understand whether or not we should install these across the board. I also find it interesting, I suppose we haven't seen, to be fair to Councillor Cartmel, we haven't seen what his actual motion text will look like. But from what he's written and said so far, it does not seem like he's going to ask for a report with some options and funding possibilities and, you know, potential benefits and challenges of installing turnstiles. It's just a motion to install fare gates at two stations as a pilot project. He's sort of jumping over the thing that would usually happen at city council before a project of this kind got underway, which again, makes me question exactly what his motivation is with this motion. You and I had talked about a couple months I had gone to West Edmonton Mall and seen The Crane, the very cool infrastructure project that uh, at the time I had said was coming in from Dubai. And Taproot did some reporting on this very same crane and got some more details on exactly how they're building 
the Valley Line West. Yeah, a reporter actually looked into this and got a really interesting story about this gantry crane, which was originally built by, I think it was an Italian firm for a project in Dubai. And they've acquired that and got some of the parts refurbished and then brought that to Edmonton to use to build the Valley Line West. This crane is 100 meters long. Usually that would uh, require about 30 people to install all of the different segments on a project of this scale. And with this crane, it's now only requiring 10 to 11 crew members. So that's really interesting. There's this improvement in terms of how efficient they can be with the construction. These spans, these segments that they're lifting, they're 36 meters long and they can lift all 11 in roughly about seven and a half hours. So they're hanging up in the sky on this machine and then they start to do the assembly. It's all very complicated and and really kind of interesting, actually, that this reused bit of machinery has been brought to Edmonton to potentially help us get Valley Line West built more quickly and more efficiently than we would have otherwise been able to do. And of course, one of the reasons we need this crane to build is because there's such an expansive elevated section of Valley Line West between the Misericordia Hospital and West Edmonton Mall. This is where it crosses 170th Street. I believe it's almost two kilometers of raised track in that area, which is substantial. Each section, I believe, is 50 tons. Yes, it is a massively large project. Of course, that will lead to Valine West being constructed faster. Valine Southeast, too, is getting just a little bit faster. As we learned this week, at least sometimes, it's running at double the frequency. Yeah, Transat has started trialing at least five-minute service during weekday peak hours. There's not a timeline yet for when this will become permanent, but at least some progress on that file, because we had heard, obviously, that we were starting with 10-minute frequencies. We all celebrated the opening. thought it was a little disappointing that we weren't given the train we were promised in terms of frequency, but I think ridership has been pretty impressive so far. At least they certainly seem busy. For Transed to now be ramping up with 5-minute frequencies is another positive sign for this project. Of course, we speculated when the frequency was reduced that uh, it was because We didn't want opening week to be marred by vehicle collisions with the trains. And indeed, opening week wasn't marred by vehicle. We had the fully clear opening week. Uh, In the ensuing weeks, there have been more collisions with vehicles. Of course, when you and I rode the train uh, with our crew of Speaking Municipally podcasters, uh, there was a lot of honking as cars turned across the train. And this week, we saw something that I didn't have on my bingo card, which is... A car drove into the Valley Line LRT, and then the driver of the car got out and just booked it, fled (laughs) on foot. So apparently this is a stolen car. He collided with it. The driver collided with the train on 66th Street near White Mud Drive. They damaged the train. Police tried to track him down. They deployed the canine team, and they were unable to locate the driver. Uh, So yeah, I did not have that on the bingo card either, but poor train hit by a driver. And then this was the second one, November 30th, there was another incident near 75th Street and Roper Road. So of course, Carrie Houghton McDonald, the branch manager for ETS, has just said that we're expecting this learning curve and people will adjust to just have to make sure you follow the rules of the road, don't steal cars and don't drive into trains. (laughs) Three years of testing this train in, uh, we still haven't nailed down the don't drive your car into a train. Uh, It's not something that I thought we would have to explain, but you never know. Uh, Maybe these are old drivers from Strathcona County who have never seen a train before in their life. And, you know, maybe they won't see a train in their life because Strathcona County has indicated 
at least with Edmonton Global, they're friends off. Someone at Strathcona County is cringing and saying, okay, these speaking municipally people are misrepresenting our opinions. Strathcona County has signaled its intention to leave Edmonton Global in its latest budget in a unanimous decision. And this follows, of course, the decision to not get on board with the Regional Transit Commission, which is now dead. You know, there's some concern or some suggestion that perhaps Strathcona County is uh, taking a sort of isolationist approach with their regional collaborations. Mayor Rod Frank says that is not the case. This is this most recent decision is not a reflection of Edmonton Global. It's strictly about the yearly contribution, about $500,000, that it can't justify that. Costs are going up. They say they're having to go through every budget, you know, every line item, justifying every cost. They say they're still a part of several things in the region, so they're not trying to abandon regional collaboration. But this was a surprising decision to me for Strathcona County to make this decision. First of all, If they want to save some money, I'm sure there are some things in their budget that don't take two years to come to pass. So all they can do at this point is signal their intent to leave Edmonton Global. It takes a full two years before they can actually do that. And we've seen in the past that other municipalities have said they're going to leave and then backtracked on that decision. Parkland County and Warrenville did that in 2020, but they rescinded those decisions in 2022. St. Albert Council voted down a suggestion from someone on council to leave. Bon Accord is the only municipality that has actually followed through and left Edmonton Global. And it did that pretty early on, not long after the organization was established. So I would probably bet that we'll see Strathcona County stay as part of Edmonton Global. A lot can change in the next two years. Even the mayor said that, and Mayor Rod Frank said that lots will ha- will change in that time frame. So I would not be surprised to see them come back. But for now, I think it's a very surprising decision for them to have made. In the region around Edmonton, they call it the Edmonton region, sort of for a reason. Yeah. It's kind of us, right? As long as Edmonton's on board, the region doesn't necessarily have to be on board. We win, right? If Edmonton (laughs) wants something in the region, we can kind of force the issue a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit different with Edmonton Global than it was with the Transit Commission, right? In that transit is really predominantly within the city boundaries. There is obviously buses in other places, but on such a smaller scale. Whereas the investment that Edmonton Global attracts really does land around the city. I mean, just last week, it was about $8.8 billion for the Dow Chemical facility that they announced with a couple more billion dollars in government, you know, grants and subsidies and things on top of that. You know, there's a lot of investment that happens in the municipalities around the city. And yes, the reason companies will come here and invest there is, yes, the the infrastructure or the physical location or the geography works, but they're also close to the city. And the people that actually want to live and work here, the employees they're going to attract, want to be in the city and want to have something like Edmonton nearby. So you're right in that if Edmonton's going to keep going here with Edmonton Global, probably we're going to be fine. But I think there's even more pressure for uh, municipalities to remain part of something like Edmonton Global, where there's a more direct benefit to them than maybe we saw in the past with regional transit. As Strathcona County is trying to save line items on its budget, Edmonton just went through that process with our uh, operating budget adjustment. It ended up being a 6.6% increase uh, for 2024 with I would say the lion's share of that increase going to the Edmonton Police Service. And the Edmonton Police Service has made quite a bit of news this week and not in the way that they would have liked coming out of budget with uh, counselors like Tim Cartmel saying, 
it's time to see results. It's time to get behind our police service. It's time now that we've given them all the tools. Let's see them succeed. Uh, I don't know that the stories that came out this week were uh, emblematic of that success that we were hoping to see. I mean, we can just look at the headlines here. We don't even have to dive into it much. 88 cops in Edmonton and Calgary have left their jobs while under investigation since 2012. That's CBC News reporting that. Edmonton police reprimand three officers for separate off-duty drunk driving incidents. That's Post Media reporting that. These are not positive news stories about the Edmonton police, but it gets worse. Two people have been shot and killed by Edmonton police in the last week. Two people. We keep hearing about all of this violence and gang violence and all the rest of it. Police are actually killing people in our city. And the part about this that is most shocking to me, or the, the part about this that I understand the least, Troy, is that one of the big stories in the last week is these gun-related incidents that prompted lockdowns, first at West Edmonton Mall and then at Kingsway Mall. In neither instance was the person with the gun shot and killed by police. Both of the people that were shot and killed were not carrying firearms. One of them had a knife, and I understand that can still be a dangerous thing, but only up close, not from a distance in the same way that a gun might be required to um, diffuse the situation. And the other person was a woman who was potentially going to harm herself. I don't understand how those people get shot and killed by police and the people that are carrying guns do not. I'm not advocating that anyone gets shot by police. I just don't understand how the more severe ones walk away and the less severe ones, or what, per, what I perceive to be less severe based on the reporting, are the ones that are shot and killed by police. There are police forces around the world where police do not carry firearms. The United Kingdom, New Zealand, Iceland, lots of places have decided that it's really unnecessary in most cases for police officers to be armed with firearms. Are there not other tools at their disposal to safely you know, diffuse the situation or apprehend a suspect or whatever it is? I just, this is not the first and second person that has been killed in Edmonton this year by police. And CBC has done some previous reporting about how we have one of the highest percentages of people getting killed by police of anywhere in Canada. It's really, really problematic. And it doesn't get enough attention because we've got the police chief out talking about encampments, talking about transit, and really saying nothing about this really serious issue with his own police force. Not to give any credence to the not-journalism organization Yegwave, but as we're hearing about some of these gun-related events at the two malls in the city, we saw on the Yegwave Instagram and Twitter video of the police taking suspects out of the back of a police van None of these suspects were handcuffed and then taking a gun off one of the suspects who was in the back of a police van, had a gun on him with a bunch of other individuals. That individual could have shot the police opening the door. That individual could have shot the other people in the van. It strikes me that this week there was a woman who had the police called because she was having a mental health crisis. They need to do a wellness check. The police thought there was a risk of this woman harming herself, so they killed her. Simultaneously, there was at the largest mall in Edmonton, a weapons complaint called. The police apprehended the suspect, didn't handcuff them, didn't remove the weapon, and honestly seemed quite cordial with all of the individuals. I feel a lot like how I felt during the convoy protests in the city of Edmonton when I saw a video of Edmonton police officers joking with what I'll call insurrectionists. And it was really disheartening to see that. And it was also, we talk about perception of safety in the city. I don't want to call the police most of the time. We do a podcast. We 
I'm on a list, you know, there's for sure. There's all these things. But if someone's breaking into my house at 3 a.m., I'm going to call 911. I'm going to call the police. And if somewhere deep in my gut, there is some part of me that knows that it's probably not going to go great. How am I supposed to feel safe as a citizen? If my last line of defense that we pay an exorbitant sum of money to have as a last line of defense doesn't feel to me like it can defend me in a crisis, I, I just don't know where we are. I think the police service should have to answer every time they kill someone. And not just a cert, which will do an investigation and then has announced already for the first one they're going to investigate. I'm sure an announcement will be made any day now about the second one. But the attention needs to be paid to this and the severity of this needs to be brought to light every single time it happens. It's unacceptable for the police to shoot and kill people and for there not to be more questions asked and for the police chief as a commission or somebody from you know, the police service to have to stand up and say, this is what happened and why. And here's what we're doing about it. Here's how we're going to avoid this from happening again. There's not enough of that, in my opinion. And of course, that brings us into a transition to the rapid fire segment, which looking at this first joke (laughs) that I wrote, Mac, is, well, not much of a transition at all. The Edmonton Police Service issued a press release late this week in order to clarify some of the confusion they'd seen in the media. Said the supervisor of media relations, Cheryl Shepard, quote, we want to make sure it's well understood that when Chief McPhee spoke earlier this year saying things like enough is enough and zero tolerance for crime and disorder, he was speaking about regular citizens, not the police officers themselves. Amid pressure from international activists to move Lucy out of the Edmonton Valley Zoo, the city of Edmonton is exploring new ways to improve the aging elephant's life. The city is now exploring privatizing parts of the zoo operation. Said the director of the Valley Zoo, Gary Dewar, quote, We're very excited to be launching the Subway Footlong Italian Herb and Cheese Super Elephant Sanctuary powered by Rogers early next year. Some zoo elephants paint or draw pictures, but Lucy will represent our city and earn her improved room and board by being the most respected of all artists, a sandwich artist. I hit that car. That's what I can be. I'm whatever Edmonton needs me to be. You'll blame me, write articles about me, call for bells, whistles, arms at crossing. That's what happens because alternatives to the personal car are never good enough. People deserve more. They deserve hundreds of people per vehicle. They deserve convenient, high frequency service to the destinations they want. They deserve to have their faith rewarded. So you'll write op-eds. You'll call it a boondoggle. Because I can take it. Because I'm a silent guardian. A watchful protector. A valley line. It's speaking municipally is, of course, a publication of Capron Edmonton, and so is The Pulse. This is our daily news briefing. Tells you everything you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning. You'll get short, informative updates about what's happening at City Hall, plus coverage of business, tech, food, the arts, and much more. You'll also get a little bit of whimsy with some features such as a moment in history. We have event listings in there, so you can find things to do on the weekend. Uh, You can find out what color the bridge is on any given day. There's lots of good stuff in there. And in case you missed it, I just wanted to give a little shout out to a story that we published this week uh, titled uh, Dismantling Edmonton's Half-Built Freeway Begins on Rossdale Road. Uh, It's a really interesting mix of urban planning and and urban history and all of that and is among the most read things we've published this year. So if you haven't checked it out, I encourage you to do that. You can find that and the pulse and everything else at tapperededmonton.ca. 
Also, check out downtown, where Rossdale Road is now closed, and we can all celebrate that that horrible travesty is now disappearing off the face of our urban planning. And Mac, um, this is the last one before the big one. Next week, we will be joining you, not just you and I, but uh, three contestants and a board of Jeopardy questions that I have not yet written. I'm in full last-minute panic mode. We have a we have a ace in the hole this year, Troy. It is the year of artificial intelligence. ChatGPT <laughs> is going to come to our rescue. I can feel it. <gasps> I hadn't even thought of having AI write the whole thing for me. Mag, this is, this is genius. Well, penultimately, until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking, Speaking Municipally. I killed those people. That's what I can be. All right, yeah, I got it. I got it. We can do this one. <laughs>